Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. There may be statements from the Supreme Court. There are plenty of statements from media, statements from social media, statements from every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Susie, and Laney, and Jane, and people who identify this way and that way and the other, everybody with an opinion on this story out of Politico, this leak from the Supreme Court that states that the court will overturn Roe v. Wade. A first draft from Justice Samuel Alito that shows that Amy Coney Barrett and Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh all siding with the majority that Roe v. Wade is unconstitutional as I should actually say it differently that Roe v. Wade never should have been decided the way it was that the conversation of abortion should go back to the states it's unsure where Chief Justice John Roberts is will he have a concurrent opinion Will he uh, go with the dissent? Or is any of this real and legitimate? Based on what I have seen over the last 12 hours, because this broke last night, it certainly seems legitimate, but I will absolutely state it's possible uh, that it's not. We're going to hear, if we haven't already heard, from the Supreme Court, one has to assume that, man, they're wicked angry. The idea that something leaks and leaks of this magnitude plays into the politics that we hate and abhor, that the purpose of the leak was indeed to apply pressure to the court to not overturn Roe v. Wade, which does not eliminate the right to abortion in America. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. William Jacobson joins us right now, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. I want to get into the law aspect with you, the constitutionality argument, the idea of overturning, the history of overturning decisions in the United States uh, for the Supreme Court, and the idea of precedent. I want to get into that with you, but let's start with the top line. A leak from the Supreme Court is radically rare. What does this say to you? Well, what it says to me, if it is a leak and not a hack, but assuming it's a leak, that there are, you know, it's part of the radicalization of the legal profession. The, you know, end result uh, justifies the means. And we've seen this, we're seeing this trend growing in the legal profession. And so it, it says that, you, you know, uh, another institution is going to fall uh, under this onslaught um, from the left. And, and the Supreme Court will never be the same after this if this was, in fact, a leak. So when you talk about not being the same, one of the things that I looked into and I was reading about is that if you have a leak, you have a situation where staffs for these justices won't trust each other. Justices will look at other justices askew. Did someone say to do this? Did someone want to do this? It creates a, 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 a serious rifts and divisions Amongst the justices, SCOTUS blog being amongst the people uh, engaged in that conversation. Do you agree with that? Well, that's right. I mean, if you can't, because a first draft of anything may just be a thought piece. A first draft might be something where you're putting some ideas out there, seeing who will go along with it, seeing who, what the opposition is, and frankly, getting the pushback. 
And I think, you know, while I've never been a Supreme Court clerk, you know, having heard a lot of people who've spoken about that process, that that is part of the process, that just because Justice Alito writes a first draft doesn't mean really anything other than it's a first draft. So I think that it will disrupt that deliberative process, that give and take sort of process, uh, maybe that negotiation sort of process where you put together a majority. It will make that impossible uh, because nobody can trust anybody. Why would you put something in draft that maybe doesn't even 100% reflect your views, but you want to kind of get that feedback if it's going to be leaked? So this is really, I mean, the Supreme Court has been amazing at their ability to think, keep things quiet. I mean, if you remember in 2012, the Obamacare decision, the whole world was watching and waiting for the Obamacare decision, and nobody knew what it was going to be until it was actually released. And people were running with copies from the courthouse steps and quickly reading it. And uh, my goodness, how they kept that quiet. And that's really the history of the Supreme Court. Not 100 percent, but, you know, 99.9 percent that they really are good at keeping things quiet and keeping things secret. And uh, that those days are gone. So it will be very important how this got out. The, the working theory from most people, including from the left, is that this was somebody within the court, probably a clerk or somebody connected to a clerk who was upset with this decision and saw how it was going to come down and wanted to, you know, throw a hand grenade into the process, create a public outrage. I mean, that's the working theory. We don't know if that's true or not. It's conceivable, probably unlikely, but it's conceivable that somebody's email account was hacked uh, or somehow compromised. And therefore, whoever did that would have had access to this information. We don't know, but that that's, you know, not something that a lot of people are talking about. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor of the Mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. I can already go to places that I know, like, and trust that are discussing the conspiracy theories of who may have done the leak and who clerked for who and all that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this shake out uh, for for a day. But I, I wasn't the first person to say it, but people like Mark Levin and others are saying whoever this person is, they're going to end up with book deals and shows on MSNBC oh, oh, uh, for, yeah, yeah, for engaging saying, oh, this, uh, this, this leak. Now let's... Never clerk again. Believe me, this is going to be a very wealthy person and a hero of the left. That's the ugly, right? That's the obscenity yeah. of it all. Uh, the the violation of the trust is going to enrich a person who engages the leak because of the body politic that we're talking about. But let's take a second, sir, and let's get to uh, Roe as a case and Casey versus Planned Parenthood as, as a case. Uh, it, to in a, in a way of summation. Let's talk about what these cases are and how the Supreme Court got to the idea that Roe v. Wade meant that abortion is somehow something that is allowed in the U.S. Well, I think most people, people who are willing to be honest about it, would recognize that Roe v. Wade was in many ways a very political compromise that, you know, they picked an arbitrary viability date. They picked an arbitrary three trimester date. scenario. Uh, There's no necessary legal logic to any of that. Uh, And so I think most people say that Roe v. Wade is probably the political compromise that the justices could see pushing through and is probably the political compromise that they thought would work. Now, it hasn't worked. Opposition, the country still basically split down the middle on abortion. But 
there's no real logic. There's no constitutional logic to Roe v. Wade. You may like it politically. You may think it's a good compromise. But this whole scenario of trimester um, really doesn't have any constitutional logic to it. But the idea of that somehow it is a decision that can't be changed. Let me see if I can play this for you. This took place on MSNBC a little bit earlier uh, today. Uh, I think this was John Heilman, uh, who is the executive editor over at uh, the, the, the Recount, and he's part of that show, uh, The Circus. He does work with NBC News. Let me share this with you right here. And the horror of all this, I think, is that uh, it's demonstrated that what we have now on the Supreme Court is not a conservative majority, but a radical majority, and a majority that no longer cares about settled law and stare decisis and the settled expectations of a country and tens of millions of women who over 50 years have come to rely on a certain set of settled expectations, as they say, about, about what they can and can't do in their lives. That's what the, the court is giving the finger to now, or the majority apparently is giving the finger to. It's radical for the court to say a decision made in the past... Uh... Uh, no, no longer holds. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, Brown versus Board of Ed, uh, 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 amongst the things. Dred Scott, the, it's radical to make these changes. Well, you know, I, I think the standard that's being applied is if you don't like what they're deciding, then all of a sudden it's radical. I mean, you certainly could make the argument that it was radical to, you know, uh, recognize, you know, same-sex marriage. Uh, as a constitutional right, or to read a statute that says on the basis of sex to mean that that includes gender identity. Um, you could, you know, do a lot of, you could, there's a lot of decisions from the Supreme Court that people don't like, um, but this one, for whatever the reason, not whatever the reason, I mean, abortion is the core of the Democratic Party. It is what they live for, so to speak, juxtaposing it. Um, so, you know, I think they just don't like the decision and call it radical. It's some huge departure. I mean, the Supreme Court, you know, from time to time overrules prior precedent and there's standards that they apply. And if you read this Alito decision, he goes through why this decision, Roe v. Wade, is not entitled to continue. And part of that standard is it was wrongly decided. Just because the Supreme Court wrongly decides something doesn't mean they can never correct what they wrongly decided. So uh, there are standards for overruling this sort of precedent. Uh, it's not that once the court decides something, it can never be changed. That's just not the way things have ever been done. So now let's discuss the the idea of of this change. Let's say that this is legit. We're, I I understand that we're we're playing in a bit of the speculation, but it, it certainly seems that the court could have gone this way. This was. Certainly a conversation for sure. The court says uh, that Roe v. Wade was, was wrongly decided and simply the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, and, and along with uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which was a little more codification and getting a little more specific on parts of Roe v. Wade, uh, says it's a state's issue. It doesn't eliminate abortion in the United States. It makes it a state's rights issue. Is there an argument that could be made by people to bring it back to the court to somehow get the court to rule in favor in their favor again uh, that somehow abortion is legal via uh, the constitution or is this as i would ha uh, always see it something that if you want to make legal go get your lawmakers to write a law and get it passed 
And in many states, it is. I mean, New York has a fairly horrendous law that was passed recently. So does Rhode Island. So do many states. I think that California's governor has promised that, you know, uh, California will become a tourist, def- uh, an abortion tourist def- uh, destination. And I think that's what you'll see. I mean, if you look at the hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars that are thrown towards left wing causes and, you know, they could certainly fund you know, transportation of people from the states that don't allow it. So I think there will be a shaking out. But I think what you'll see is in the blue states and the purple states, this will be codified into state law. And in the solid blue states, the Californias of the world, they will actually promote people coming to California uh, or coming. I think Connecticut just passed a law that it wanted to be like a sanctuary state or something like that. Uh, And so you'll see that you'll see that many states will encourage people to come there to get abortions. And this will not change that. You expect um, statements, uh, you know, regardless of the statements the the Supreme Court uh, makes, uh, would it be your take based on your knowledge of it, although not having uh, internal workings, uh, that uh, there's a conversation amongst these nine people that goes, who the hell did this? Well, there's, there's got to be. I mean, you know, they have to find out how this got out. Otherwise, you know, it'll be impossible for them to deal with each other in the future. And, you know, uh, I assume they will get the FBI involved and the FBI will interview every single pe- person in that courthouse and we'll put them under oath and we'll record the conversation. Because now if they lie, they've committed a crime, they've committed perjury, and they've also committed the crime of lying to the FBI, to the federal government, which people have gone to jail for. So uh, who, if it was somebody on the Supreme Court staff, a clerk, whoever it happened to be, they're going to have a very uncomfortable choice very soon, which is that they're either going to have to commit a felony or they're going to have to fess up or quit they, we know the FBI has already uh, been contacted. They will engage the investigation, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it the day to let uh, some of this shake out, the statements shake out, and you know, there's gonna be a lot of uh, pointing of fingers and a lot of people yeah, rushing to be first to commentary as opposed to right. Stuff so out there, pointing the finger at one particular clerk, and that's very irresponsible. We've had too many cases in the past where somebody has been mistakenly named or mistakenly identified. So, you know, I've not retweeted that. Uh, that's very irresponsible to speculate like that. We don't know who did this at this point. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. I'd rather be right than, than first. We will keep on it. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We've got more. I'm Tony Katz. Elon Musk goes to the Met Gala. He could have bought the Met Gala. He should buy it and call it the Musk Gala. People still show up. They just want to wear the insane outfits. And the outfits are nuts. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. What's going on, everybody? Find me over there at Rumble. Rumble.com slash Tony Katz. Twitter, Tony Katz. You'll notice, by the way, that I'm talking about Twitter, not Facebook. Oh, am I having a problem with Facebook? Yeah, but it's it, so. Here's what's what's going on, producer. All right, I'll, I'll I'll get right into it. Um, I do videos at at Facebook. I've done videos at Facebook for a long time, and those 
videos are getting throttled. I'm hearing from people and have been over the last couple of months that people can't find my content anymore. Now, we know this about Facebook, right? We know this about many of these organizations. We know that, that we got shadow banned by, by Twitter. And um, we know that uh, we have, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We have people who have been absolutely told that they can't in any way, shape, or form get on social media. They, uh, you're suspended for 30 days, this, that, and the other. But the shadow banning is the idea that, that you, you, you have people who are posting, but they don't realize they're not, they're not reaching anybody. Well, we've been noticing this for a while. And lately, the videos that I do over there, Morning Rumble at rumble.com with Americans for Prosperity, and I share over at Facebook, they've just fallen off the map. That we're, 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 we're getting no viewership whatsoever. To the point where I'm trying to take the videos and boost them, pay, actually give my dollars to Facebook to get more people to see them. Oh, sorry, can't, that's political. It's a political advertisement. You have to jump through these hoops. I then posted about this, that Facebook is doing this and I'm going to have to stop putting things on Facebook. And I tried to boost that post. You know what they told me? It's connected to tobacco. What the hell are you talking about? I didn't mention a cigar in there at all. Because I talk about cigars, I'm not allowed to talk about anything else? Really bad stuff. Really problematic stuff. So I don't know what my future is with Facebook. I have never had a problem until recently. And some people have said, you know, it's because of the coming uh, election, right? You, you've got the election, you're in an election uh, season, right? You got the election coming up. And what's happening is, is that they're throttling content so they can ensure that progressives win. What I'll tell you is that that's, um, that's good conspiracy theory, but I don't know if I can utilize that as something that's legit. I have no idea. Some people told me they're dealing with the same exact issues and problems. They have not been able to get their content out. Whatever the case may be, it's happening, right? Tony Katz Radio is where I am on Facebook. We have been stuck on follower counts for over a year. We're seeing more and more that our content is, is, is not getting out there. When we would post, we would have huge engagement, and lately we've had non-engagement. So go to Rumble, rumble.com slash Tony Katz, and subscribe. It's free. TonyKatz.locals.com. That's where I'm going to be building everything. I'm going to start from scratch. That's the way that one's going to go. But I'll be in charge of my own ship. I can't let Facebook do this. And now I'm going to at least give Twitter the shot because Musk is in charge, and we'll see what happens. At Tony Katz on Twitter. So as we know by now, Ibram Kendi is a racist. And as we've gone through the definitions, of course you can be black and be a racist. Now maybe it's more apt to call the anti-racism king a bigot and not a racist, but I'll leave that to others. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, what is going on? Twitter, Tony Katz, Getter, Tony Katz, Instagram, Tony Katz, because that's still uh, working, and Rumble.com slash Tony Katz. What makes me bring up Ibram Kendi? Well, it's always important to know that the bigots are out there. 
And they don't stop. They just keep coming at you and keep coming at you and keep coming at you. But this from Kendi, it's a fascinating thought. Police inherently are harmful. The theory that police can reduce harm or create safety is fundamentally flawed, says Ibram Kendi. Now, this is the guy who wants to teach kids that they are guilty for their existence, who believes in the oppressed-oppressor relationship, and wants to teach kids who are black that they can never advance because the system is keeping them down, and teach kids that are white that they're always oppressors even if they aren't being oppressive and even if they don't know it. They, that it just exists by their being born. Pretty awful thing to say. You're guilty no matter what you do. That's, a, that's an, an interesting look uh, because it's actually kind of like a religious look. Right? Live a certain life or you're going to hell is one way people look at religion. Do certain things, live a certain life, otherwise your soul will be tortured for all eternity. Christopher Hitchens used to talk about that and say that is certainly no way to get me on your side. Do this or else. And it's interesting that the people who who make the claim that everybody else is just clinging to their uh, guns and religion are people who cling uh, to these uh, radicalness pieces or this this radical notions of cult of personality, and it's based on some of that same conversation. This is not me attacking Christianity by any stretch of the imagination or Catholicism or, or Judaism or anything else. This is just a recognition that if, you know, in, in, in one instance, you can walk a certain path and find your way to heaven. In, in Kennedy's, no, 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 you're guilty. In one path, uh, there is an almighty. In the other, Kendi sees himself as the almighty. It's pretty interesting. But one of the things that Kendi is discussing here in a conversation By the way, he's the director and founder of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research. Uh, uh, You you found the bigot, Boston. Congratulations, Boston University. Yeah, yeah, you figured it out. So he's discussing police as saying, I think one of the overarching points that you just demonstrated in so many different ways is the theory that police can reduce harm or create safety is fundamentally flawed because the police inherently are harmful. But it's so ingrained in us, says Kendi, that police uh, is protective. And you demonstrated that even the term police violence, we now don't even have to use the term violence because the police are inherently sort of violent. So I read this And I uh, said uh, to myself out loud, well, who didn't know that the police are inherently violent? And I know I'm going to get a lot of pushback on that. Hold on. Government by nature is violent. Because in order for government to have power, it must introduce rules where if the rules are broken, the response is force. Government is force. So by extension, the police are force. This is not a surprising um, revelation. When it comes through the lens of a bigot like Ibram Kendi, he'll tell you that that force comes and exists based on racist concepts. 
the 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 founding of the nation is is is, is bigoted. This was meant to keep certain people uh, uh, down, people who look like him, people who look not like you, etc. Well, I I don't have to pay attention to his crazy. What I can state is that police are force. Of this, there is no doubt. And there shouldn't be. So one of the people he's talking about is um, uh, police uh, do provide a lot of protection. They protect the borders. They protect private property. They protect capitalism. They protect people who have power. Every white supremacist march I've ever count, I've counter-protested. The police were there facing us, not the white supremacists. And so I know exactly what police protect. This is where the differential takes place between a rational and irrational conversation, between the rational and irrational mind. What's wrong with protecting capitalism and private property? By stating that that is the issue where force should not be used, you are advocating for the idea that there should be no private property and no capitalism. Thus, not only are you a bigot, you're also an outed communist and a fool. And as we know, there is massive government force in communism because in order to say, you know, in order to do away with capitalism, you actually have to do away with capitalism, which means you have to take from people. Now, we see this in the government or, or the culturally acceptable ways as social justice, economic justice, racial justice. All those things are tools of wealth redistribution. They're meant to steal money, take it from one person and give it to another. All the talk of Black Lives Matter and do you support Black Lives Matter and corporations saying, here, here's a check. This was a shakedown. In the, in the same vein of, of Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton, this was a shakedown. And the opposition of capitalism is to say you can engage in more taxes. How dare these companies profit? You hear people like uh, like uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's not when she's not lying about being Native American, talking about how these companies are are profiting too much, to excess profits. What the hell's an excess profit? Do you know how ignorant you have to be to say the word excess profit? You know how hateful you have to be? You know how in favor of force you have to be to discuss excess profits? It starts with the idea that you think you have a vision of what acceptable profits are. And you get to decide when it's too much. And if it's too much, why shouldn't you be able to take it? And since you are a senator and engage and control the levers of government, why shouldn't you be able to use force to do so? But it's not force force like you would see on a street corner. Oh, no, no. It's fancy force because we use the government to do it and we couch it in this sweet, lovely language. The bigotry of Ibram Kendi is remarkable. He laments the police force as something that is nothing but force and is nothing but inherently violent and refuses to recognize that the government that he wants to implement his procedures and policies of bigotry to get to his results is all about violence. If you ask me, what's more harmful? Who is more harmful? The police or Ibram Kendi? I'll tell you Ibram Kendi. Because the police don't spend their days and nights looking to see who they can throw in jail. Looking to see who they can shoot. You know, this idea of police are only shooting black men like they're going around shooting black men. None of that is true. Ibram Kendi spends his days and nights looking to see all the white people he can find guilty. And look at all the black people he can say to them, you're never going to get ahead because of them. He spends his days and nights pushing bigotry and profiting off of it. 
could argue that that's more violent. And I think I will. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today.